You've probably seen that TV commercial where some people from the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes knock on a door to tell him he's just won $4 million. And the winner is delirious with joy. I watched one where he's leaping in the air, he's laughing, he's crying. He's hardly believing this could be true. But imagine that when the folks from Publishing Clearinghouse tell the guy he won $4 million, he pulls out a shotgun and says, get off my property or I'll shoot you. But sir, you, you don't understand. We're giving you good news. You've just won a fortune. But he belligerently says, I said, get off my property now. But you filled out the card and sent it in. <laughs> and they go running. Now that's the kind of the reception for the most part that Israel gave their long-awaited Messiah. God came to them in human flesh. And he was despised and rejected among men. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was stricken. He was afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. It's a staggering thought. God sent messengers with the best news in the world that God is ready to pardon any sinner who will receive his offer of grace and forgiveness but a suffering servant did not fit with Israel's idea of a Messiah. They wanted a conquering king who would conquer all their enemies. They wanted somebody, a king who would provide a comfy life for them. They didn't like all this talk about being sinners who needed a savior to die in their place. So they slammed the door on the best news in the world. And what's more, they killed the king of glory. So please turn to Romans chapter 10 again, this time to the 16th verse. Chapter 10, verse 16 of Romans, where the Apostle Paul writes, However, they did not all obey the good news or heed the good news, the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Paul says they did not all obey the gospel. It's another way of saying most did not heed or obey the gospel. And the question is, why not? Why not? Why do some believe and others don't? Why are some saved when they hear the gospel message? And why do some reject it? Sometimes belligerently or even violently. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is dealing with the unbelief of Israel the rejection of their own Messiah. And the question is why? Why does Israel, and anyone else for that matter, whether they're Jew or Gentile, reject the good news of Jesus Christ? Put another way, what are their excuses? Or what would their excuses be? And Paul's anticipating two excuses here in verses 18 through 20 of Romans chapter 10. And the first excuse for not obeying the gospel as it pertains to Israel and probably to everybody else is Israel had not heard the gospel. You know, they put it like, well, we have the Old Testament, we have the word of God, and we can't find the gospel of Jesus Christ in there anyway. And, and no one told us, they said. And the second is Israel did not know. They didn't have the right information. If they did not understand it. I don't know it. I, I haven't heard it. I, and if I did hear it, I didn't understand it. I just didn't get it. And so the first excuse for Israel not obeying the good news is that Israel had not heard the gospel. So look at verse 18 
of Romans chapter 10, verse 18. But I say to you, surely they have never heard, have they? they? They've never heard the gospel. Surely they've never heard. The first excuse is often heard today. How, how can people believe the gospel when they've never heard it? Have you heard that said before? When I was a young man even, I, it was put this way, and people would argue this way. What about all those people in deepest, darkest Africa who have never had the chance to hear the gospel? God wouldn't send them to hell, would he? How can he hold them accountable for something they didn't even know about? It's really not a bad question. It's a tough question because Paul has already asked here, right here, how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach without them being sent? And Paul has made that case. You can't believe the gospel unless you've heard the gospel. And so in answering that objection that people have not heard, the apostle quotes what seems to be a very strange verse in this context. Paul doesn't rehash all the arguments he's already made about how Israel should have heard. How they had all the advantages when it came to the Messiah and the good news. They were God's children, descendants of Abraham, children of the covenant. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, the sayings of God, the word of God. They were given the word of God. They had the law and the prophets. They had every advantage. And you would think that at this point, Paul would appeal to those same advantages. But he doesn't. Instead, he comes up with this quote we'll look at in a minute from Psalm 19. Look at verse 18 again of Romans chapter 10. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Then he adds what? Indeed, they have. They have heard, but not in the way that you would think at this point. It's not because they heard a preacher once in a while. It's not because they have a Bible in their home or in their synagogue, as it were. So how have they heard? It's not because Israel had the word of God. It wasn't because they were in covenant relationship with God. It wasn't that they were trying to keep the commandments of God and that they prayed, or that they heard the prophets. They heard from a completely different voice than this. And in verse 18, Roman or Paul quotes, Verse 18, in verse 18 of Romans 10, Paul quotes the 19th Psalm, and he simply refers to it as he quotes it, their voice. Their voice. Well, whose voice? Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Whose voice? What voice is this? It's a voice that went out not just to Israel, but to all the earth. Their words were sent out to the ends of the world. So what is this voice that he says is, is their voice? So we need to go back to the 19th Psalm to see what this is. Because this is a quote from Psalm 19, verse 4, but we're going to begin with the familiar first verse. Verse 1 is Psalm 19, and we've already read it on the screen this morning, is our call to worship. What is this voice? Verse 1 of Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of the Lord. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech and there are no words. Their voice is not 
heard. And then verse 4 is the one that Paul quotes directly. Their sound or their voice has gone out through the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. And I want to read this from the, the Net Bible, the New English Translation, which is translated by the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, because they give a wonderful, clear sense of this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky declares, or the st- sky displays his handiwork. Day after day it speaks out. Night after night it reveals his greatness. There are no actual speech or words, nor is its voice literally heard. Yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. Its words carry to the distant horizon. In the sky he has pitched a tent for the sun. This is what is called natural or general revelation, that God reveals himself in creation. Now, special revelation is how God reveals himself through his written word, his living word, through the prophets, through the law, through scripture. That's special revelation. Natural revelation is how God reveals himself through what he has created. And all creation cries out that God is. And all creation cries out that God is glorious. How can you look into the night sky and see all those stars and now what we understand is galaxies and nebulae and all that other stuff. How can you look at that and say, God, you ain't much. (laughs) But people do, don't they? Or that God doesn't exist. You know, this takes us back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the first chapter of Romans. And we've been back to that several times in, in these middle chapters in Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. People don't reject God because they don't know about him. No one can honestly say, I rejected God because I didn't hear about him. I rejected God because I didn't know about him. I didn't understand him. People plain and simply reject God because of sinful disobedience and pride. That's what we saw in the first chapter of Romans, verse 18 of of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are what? Without excuse. Isn't that what we're talking about this morning? Excuses, excuses. I didn't hear about him. I didn't know about him. Verse 21. For even though they, what? Knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And then what follows this, we would normally think this is pagans, idolatry, idolaters, idol worshipers, who are professing to be wise because they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures and, and all those idols, those false gods that people have. Pagans only? No, Israel did exactly the same thing, didn't they? They worshipped and served the false gods of the people that around them. And that was the sin 
that destroyed the northern kingdom and took the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity into Babylon. So Paul is saying that the problem with the Jews' wide rejection of the gospel is not that they had not heard the message, because they should have got it from their Old Testament, and they should have got it from natural revelation, but it was because they rejected the message because they loved their own sin and they followed after other gods. Like the Gentiles, they surpassed the truth in righteousness and unrighteousness. And even when they claim to know God, God is our God, of course we're following God, their pride caused them to establish their own righteousness rather than subject themselves to God's righteousness. But going back to how this might apply today, if people deny God by believing the myth of evolution, they're not going to be inclined to submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Evolution is the most preposterous myth ever foisted on the human race. Otherwise, intelligent people latch onto it because it gives them a supposed escape from the uncomfortable truth that hits you right between the eyes in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that, if that is true, and it's not put out there, the Bible doesn't put it out there so we can debate it and discuss it, if that is true, and it is, then God is God, and I'm not. God is God, and you're not. The sad thing is that people reject the light that they do have. They reject the light. They reject the revelation that he has given through creation. And having done that, they willfully refuse to be led into the greater light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, and this is a truism, from, from God's word. When we respond to the light that God has given us, whatever that light is, whether it's through creation or whether we heard something on TV or on the news or from a friend that, that shared something of God, when, when we respond to that light, God leads into greater light. When we respond to the light that we have, God leads into greater light. So what about those people in deepest, darkest Africa who haven't supposedly heard? It's very simple. It's all about God's grace. This is God's way. If a person responds to the light that God has given, he leads them into greater and greater light. We have a really good example of this in the 10th chapter of Acts. Back in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. The 10th chapter of Acts introduces us to a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. He was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. In Acts chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now, I don't know how Cornelius became a devout man who feared God. He would have been reared totally in a pagan environment when he was growing up. With all the gods of the Romans and all the pagan ideas. But somehow, God intervened and came into his life and he responded in faith to what he knew of the living and true God of Israel. But he had not yet responded to the gospel. 
It never had heard the gospel. So what did God do? Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, amen, for sure, yep, we know, <laughs> we read several accounts in scripture, what happens when an angel of the Lord comes. And Cornelius says, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is called Peter. God is leading Cornelius into more light. He's leading him into the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. God didn't wait for someone to come to Cornelius' house one day, to a Gentile home, which most Jews wouldn't want to go to, in hopes that somebody who knew the gospel would knock on Cornelius' door and present the gospel. No, he sends an angel to come to Cornelius. Now, you might be thinking, I don't think God works that way anymore, does he? Does God work that way? There have been accounts after account, especially in Islamic countries, where God is working in people's hearts before they hear the gospel presented. They respond to what light they have, and God gives them more light, and he leads them into greater light. I have heard firsthand accounts of people in these countries who came to know Christ, but not everything about Christ. Some have seen him in a vision. And when a missionary comes to them and they hear God's word, they respond, I already know him. Now I know that he is Jesus Christ who died for my sins on the cross. And one of the interesting thing is their testimonies that when they give them the word of God and put the word of God actually in their hands, now they have God's word, the vision stop. Because now they have the word of God. Not long ago, I heard a former Iraqi soldier give his testimony on Christian radio on Haven Today. The man had been captured and tortured by ISIS. You can't even imagine. Since he was a former Iraqi soldier, he was captured by ISIS and he was being tortured. And during his torture, when he thought he wouldn't even survive this, he saw Jesus Christ and came to believe in him as his Savior. And miraculously, he was released. But when he was released from prison and he was heading home, he didn't know what he was going to tell his wife. Hey, now I'm a Christian. I know Christ. And when he got home, he discovered that his wife had also had a vision of Christ, and she had received Jesus Christ. And now the man and his wife work with Samaritan's Purse in the refugee camps in Syria. What about Cornelius? The apostle Peter also had a vision. But he was much more reluctant to obey Christ than was Cornelius. You know that story had the vision of the 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 what the thing are coming <laughs> coming down from heaven and all these different kinds of animals on it and Peter eat and Peter said no oh, I can't do that that's you know and he he kept coming to work it and uh, Peter had to to choke down that first ham sandwich. Well, anyway. <laughs> After much prodding, Peter finally went to Cornelius' house, and he shared the gospel of Christ. And we pick it up in verse 44 of Acts chapter 10. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter, that is, all the party of the circumcision, I, I don't know why they went with him, but they wanted to see what's going on, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they are hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked them, then they asked him to stay a few more days. That brings us to the second excuse people use to reject the good news. The first is they say they haven't heard. But in reality, they have not responded to the light God has already given them. They, they chose to be in willful disobedience. The second claim is they don't understand it. I didn't get it. Excuse number two back in Romans chapter 10 is Israel did not know. Israel did not know. Chapter 10 of Romans verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask me. Now, Paul is saying here, there is a people who did not understand. There is a people who didn't get it. There, were, there is a people who are clueless to the gospel and everything else about God, and it wasn't the Jews, it was the Gentiles. So you can't use the excuse, I didn't know or I didn't understand it, because it was the people, the Gentiles, who didn't know and who didn't understand, and they were the ones that were saved. Like Cornelius, when they heard the gospel, they embraced Christ and were saved. And here in verse 19, Paul is quoting two passages of Scripture, one from Deuteronomy and one from Isaiah, and he's providing witnesses from the law, Deuteronomy, and the prophets, Isaiah, to build the case that the Jews were responsible for their own sin and unbelief. So please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, the first verse. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 21. This is just before the people of Israel are going into the promised land. And Moses is predicting and saying, this is how it's going to go. That this stiff-necked, idolatrous people will provoke God to jealousy and anger. And he says in verse 21, They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And Paul is applying this to the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles. Just as Israel provoked God to jealousy and anger by their idolatry, so God will provoke Israel to repentance and faith when they jealously see those whom they despise, those who are a known nation, a foolish nation, a Gentile nation coming to know God. And so what is it that Israel did not know? Verses 19 
and 20 of Romans chapter 10 again. This takes us back to verses, well, actually to verses 11 and 13. Go back to Romans chapter, got you turning today. Romans chapter 10, and we're going to look again at the 11th and the 13th verses. And what is, Paul is saying here is that in spite of God's kindness, in spite of God's patience towards the nation Israel, most of the Jews would reject the gospel. Why would they reject the gospel? It's because it goes out to the hated Gentiles. It's the whosoever, the whoever extended the gospel, that it's not for Jews, but it's for the, the whole world. And so verses 11 and 13 are quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And these are quotes from the Old Testament that show that Israel should have known these things. They should have known it from reading their own scripture. God wasn't making it up. But why did Israel not see these things? Why were they blind to the plain teaching of the scriptures? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones observes that the quotes that Paul picks out hit the Jews with three of their national sins, their national sins that blocked them from the gospel. First of all, they were proud nationally. We alone are God's chosen people, they said. We alone are God's chosen people. So God provokes them by those who are not a nation, the Gentiles. Second, they were proud of their knowledge of the scriptures. They said, we alone have God's law. So God provokes them to anger by those who are a nation without understanding and didn't have the law. And third, the Jews were relying on their works to gain righteousness. So God confounds them by saving those who didn't even seek him or his righteousness. You see, just as they had given their love love to another God, just as Israel had given their love to false gods, God gave his love to another people. God gave his love to another people. And Jesus made this abundantly clear to them. Remember how in chapters 21 and 22 of Matthew, Jesus kept saying to them, Look, I'm going to turn from you to this other people. You don't want to come to the banquet? I'll get some people who want to come to the banquet. You don't want to serve me? I'll find some people who will. You want to kill my servants and my son? I'll give the vineyard to someone else who is worthy of it. In Luke 14, you don't want to come to my great supper? You don't want to eat of this feast? Then I'll go to the highways and byways and I'll call the lame and the blind and all the rest of them. In here. Over and over again, Jesus said in his ministry to the Jews, If you don't want the kingdom, I'll find somebody else. And that's what he did. And that's the thing that's so striking about verse 20 of Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 20 again. And Isaiah is very bold and says, and he's quoting the Lord here, Isaiah is very bold to say this I was found by those who did not seek me, I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. By Isaiah's boldness here, Paul is referring to the astonishing nature of God's grace. He pursues and seeks those who are not seeking after him. He pursues and conceits, uh, seeks those who are content in their pagan, idolatrous ways, whatever that is, and their self-centeredness. And this shows us that salvation is not due to some good streak, good human streak in sinners. 
but it's totally due to God's sovereign grace, his grace. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, it's not because it was originally your idea to seek him and find him. Rather, he intervened in your life to reveal himself to you. His spirit convicted you of sin and showed you the need for a savior. He moved in your heart to respond to the gospel in faith. Verse 21, as we conclude this, we still have another scripture passage to go to. (laughs) Verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Once again, Paul quotes the Old Testament, this time from Isaiah chapter 65. This should be the last one. Isaiah 65, begin at verse 1, because we've already seen that quoted in the book of Romans here. The Lord says in Isaiah 65, verse 1, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I. Here am I. The Lord says, here am I. Here am I. To a nation that did call upon my name. Do those words, here am I, sound familiar, especially from Isaiah? Yeah, Isaiah's vision of God in the temple in in the sixth chapter. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted in the train of his robe, filled the whole temple, and the seraphim were hovering over him, crying out, (coughs) one to another. I hope they do a better job of crying out than I did here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. Well, the temple was filling with smoke. In response to this holiness of God, Isaiah became acutely aware of his own sin. I'm a sinner. God, you are holy, and I am not. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Then one of the seraphim flew to him with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And Isaiah writes, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. You remember Isaiah's response. He says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah adopted the respectful attitude of a servant at his master's disposal. Wherever you want me to go, Lord, whatever you want me to do, here am I, send me. But here in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, it is God who says, here am I. Here am I. And he says it twice for emphasis. He says, I said, here am I. Here am I. Even though the Gentiles did not ask or seek or offer themselves to God's service, the Lord God, the holy God of the universe, allowed them to find him, to be found by them. And he revealed himself to them, and he offered himself to them. The Lord humbly said to them, here am I. This is dramatic imagery for God's grace. For God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. 
that the holy God of creation would condescend, come to us and say, here I am. Here I am. Make, take the initiative to make himself known to us. But the imagery is even more dramatic in verse 2 of, of Isaiah chapter 65. The Lord says to Israel, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. The Lord God does not simply allow himself to be found, which is wonderful enough. He actively holds out his hands to them. It's like holding out his hands, the parent holding out his his hands like the prodigal son come to me offering a hug offering a kiss a promising welcome God has outstretched his arms to his people and he keeps them continuously outstretched all day long pleading for them to return so what is your response to the greatest news in the world the news is not that you've just won publishing clearinghouse sweepstakes. <laughs> the news is that God sent his son to die for your sins. If you believe in him, he will give you eternal life as a free gift. And if you receive that good news, you will praise God with open heart to his truth. Shall we? Father, as we prepare ourselves now to come to our Savior's table, the table of the Lord, Father. The outstretched hands, I think of the outstretched hands of Jesus Christ on the cross. As he was lifted up and he died for our sins. And now he keeps those hands outstretched. Inviting us to come to him. Where we know the forgiveness of sins. Where we receive eternal life. And Father, we live the abundant life. The new kind of life that God gives us. That you give us in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you so much for the symbolism of, about, of what we are about to do the body that Jesus gave for us, the blood that he shed for us, that we might have forgiveness of our sins. Father, I thank you for working in our hearts and our minds this morning. And I pray, Father, if there is someone who has been resisting the open arms that you have for that person, that, Father, your Holy Spirit would lovingly work, even right now, Lord, to bring that person into your arms. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.